Let us uh, continue on in our survey of the Trinitarian theology of Cornelius Van Til. We've looked for some time in an extended way at the influences of A.A. Hodge and the reception of Westminster Confession 2-3 at Old Princeton and the exposition of Trinitarian dogma in Herman Bovink and his Reformed Dogmatics. Both of these are affirmed by Van Til and Van Til seeking to develop the foundational structural strands, as we said, of classical or historic Reformed orthodoxy summarized in the Westminster Confession. So we've looked at A.A. Hodge and Herman Bovink, and we've talked especially about the numerical unity of the divine essence and what divine simplicity entails, one consciousness, one intelligence, one personality, in Bobbing's language, one absolute personality. We've also looked at the relations of subsistence, the personal relations of subsistence, the way that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit distinct, distinctly subsist as the undivided essence of God, and we drew the implications from that. Now we need to develop a, a distinct third uh, aspect beyond those three summarizing structural strands. So you have the three structural stands, strands, the unity of the divine essence, the three distinct persons, and then the personal properties of subsistent relations. We've developed those. We now need to move on and talk about a third old Princeton uh, uh, expression, or we could call it, uh, I guess, a third theologian, second old Princetonian, Charles Hodge. Van Til quotes Charles Hodge in chapter 17 of the Intro to Systematic Theology, and he takes the quotation from Hodge's Systematic Theology, volume 1, page 461, and he develops the implications of what we're going to, to look at of Trinitarian perichoresis, perichoretic relations within the Trinity. We're going to develop that now because this is an additional and more sophisticated development of these foundational structures we've already surveyed. Hodge says this. He says, as the essence of the Godhead is common to the several persons, they have a common intelligence, will, and power. So we'll stop right there. When, remember, when we're talking about um, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, it's something we've already seen. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there is a uh, single essence. And as one in essence, uh, there, that is common to the three persons, there's a common intelligence, will, and power. So once again, when you're talking Charles Hodge now, that common essence is a common um, intelligence, will, and power, which is fundamentally a restatement of what we've seen in AA. Hodge. He says, there are not in God three intelligences, three wills, three efficiencies. The three are one God and therefore have one mind and will. So in addition to intelligence, will, power, 
He says there's a single divine mind. Fundamental review of what we've seen. But then he says this. This intimate union was expressed in the Greek church by the word perichoresis, which we have up here on the board. Perichoresis, which the Latin words in extentia, in habatio, and intercommunio were used to explain. Now, what we need to do is stop and ask the question, what does the dogmatic category of perichoresis add to what we've already seen about the single undivided essence and the three distinct persons who subsist entirely as that undivided essence? What do we say more when we're talking about perichoresis than what we have said? Well, Hodge points out uh, just on the next page, and Ventil quotes this on page 225 of IST, this fact of the intimate union, communion, and inhabitation of the persons of the Trinity is a reason why everywhere in Scripture and instinctively by all Christians, God as God is addressed as a person in perfect consistency with the tri-personality of God. Now here's what you need to appreciate. We've already located the personality of God as a function of what? Of the unity of the essence of God. The, the, the numerical unity and divine simplicity of the essence, the indivisible essence, is what moves us to say there is one intelligence, one will, one power, one mind of God, and in Van Til's language, God is absolute personality following Bavink. Hodge affirms that. But notice here, he uses three terms to talk about the relation of the persons of the Trinity that describe perichoresis. And those three terms are first, union, second, communion, and third, Inhabitation. Union, communion, and inhabitation of person to person in the Godhead. Now, what that means by way of generic introduction is this. That in addition to there being these relations of subsistence that these lines are going to represent, Remember, what is a subsistent relation? The Son, as He subsists in the divine essence, is identical to that divine essence. And so these lines are lines that talk about subsistent relations. A, subs a subsistent relation is a relation between a Trinitarian person and the undivided essence of God. And so the subsistent relation is a threefold distinction within the Trinity. The Son subsists as the one essence of God, the Father and Spirit likewise.
when you're talking about perichoretic relations, in Hodge's language, the union, communion, and inhabitation, you're talking not of a relationship of person to essence, but you're talking about a relation of person to person. And so these lines on the outside of our triangle, moving downward from Father to Holy Spirit, from Father to Son, and then from Son to Holy Spirit, and Holy Spirit to Son, and Holy Spirit to Father. These lines are lines of what we will call not a subsistent relation, but a perichoretic or co-inherent personal relation. These are personal relations of perichoresis or co-inherence. And the idea of perichoresis is this. Not only does each person subsist entirely as the one undivided essence of God, but the Father inhabits the Son, the Father inhabits the Holy Spirit, and the Son and Holy Spirit inhabit one another in personal relations of co-indwelling. Person dwells in person. Person inhabits person. Now, Hodge does not cite Turretin in this regard, but Francis Turretin has an extremely useful discussion of perichoresis in his Institutes of Electic Theology, Volume 1, page 257, that helps us understand the nature of a perichoretic or co-inherent relation, which is person, Trinitarian person, dwelling in Trinitarian person, inhabiting Trinitarian person. And listen to what he says, and I'll amplify and expound this. He says that the term imperichoresis, quote, was not used without reason to describe the intimate mutual union of the persons that can be inferred when the Son is said to be in the Father and the Father in the Son, John 10, 38, 14, 11. They thought this mystery could not be better expressed than by the phrase, Enelon empiricosin, a mutual intertwining or in existence and eminence, so as to designate thus that the union by which the divine persons embrace each other and permeate, if that is right to say, each other, so that although always remaining distinct, Yet they are never separated from each other, but always coexist. Where one is, 
the other also really is. That's the end of a quite long quotation. Several comments are in order about this. First, perichoresis takes for granted the absolute numerical unity of God's essence and the relations of personal subsistence in that undivided divine essence. And so perichoresis is not an alternative to the numerical essence of God being one, one in intelligence, will, power, and mind, one absolute personality, nor is perichoresis opposed to or giving us an alternative to these subsistent relations represented by these lines where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit distinctly and personally subsist as God, as the undivided essence of God. All that we saw from both A.A. Hodge and Herman Bovink remains intact when we speak about these perichoretic or co-inherent personal relations of inhabitation, communion, and union. There, the, 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 so this is not set in tension to or, or said to be in opposition, perichoresis, to the relations of subsistence. Second, what perichoresis adds and brings into view is the mutual personal union of the members of the Godhead. Mutual personal union. That is a key to what perichoresis or coherence brings into view. So let me state it this way. It is not only that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit subsist distinctly as the entire divine essence. It is not only that the entire divine essence subsists in a threefold existence. Putting it both ways. That's putting it the Hodge way and the Bobbink way. Those are the relations of person to essence or essence to person. Perichoresis brings into view the mutual indwelling of divine person within divine person. It is a conceptually distinct reality. Each person not only subsists as the entire and undivided essence, but while doing so, as existing in these subsistent relations, Trinitarian person exhaustively indwells the other Trinitarian persons. And so it's person indwelling person as all are God in, the, in those mutually subsistent relations. Third, and this is where Francis Turretin is, I think, quite useful. Turretin uses two images or two distinct conceptions to describe perichoresis. They are the ideas now, if we talk about Turretin, just for a moment, and we'll call it the, the, the Turretin edition, um, mutual embrace 
mutual permeation. Mutual embrace and mutual permeation. The first gives us the, the idea or the conception of person embracing person in an exhaustively personal relation. So this idea of mutual embrace can be amplified by Hodge as what? Union and even something approximating communion. Person indwelling person in a mutual embrace as all subsists distinctly as the undivided divine essence. The second gives us the conception of a divine embrace being something entirely interior to the divine person. They, the, the persons embrace one another in the Godhead. And this embrace does not presuppose that they are first separated from one another as in the case of creatures. Rather, they, they embrace one another in a manner that is entirely interior to each person. Each person exhaustively permeates the other in a relation of coherence, and from the interior of divine person embraces the other. So it's a mutual embrace of mutual permeation that is entirely interior to the divine persons. Persons dwell on the interior of persons within the Godhead. There is no initial distance between them, no exteriority among them. Person dwelling in person in a way that is mutually permeating, mutually exhaustive of person. Now, that means then that this relation of coherence represented by the lines going from person to person on the outside of the triangle. That means these relations are coherent relations where in an entirely interior way there is personal inhabitation. And this is the case even while and as each person is God. So how can we put this? Well, I'm trying not to be in any way innovative here, but perichoresis is the conceptual capstone for full-orbed Trinitarian theology. It's the conceptual capstone because it brings into integrated focus not only the unity of the divine essence, not only the subsistent relations of persons who are that essence, but the exhaustive mutual inhabitation, permeation, and embrace of the persons who are that one undivided essence from all eternity. 
And so the relations of subsistence are at the same time relations of co-inherence. So let us relate perichoresis to the unity of God following what Turretin and Hodge have said. As there is one intelligence, one will, one absolute personality that is the single numerical essence of God, so there are three subsistences who are that entire essence. That's review from our first two lectures. What perichoresis adds is that these persons at the same time mutually embrace and permeate one another in an exhaustive way. Hence, when we speak of the Trinitarian relation in terms of personal permeation, personal embrace, personal coherence, here's what we start to see. When you just isolate now the persons, just simpliciter, just as, an, as, an, as a mental exercise, we can't separate them from the essence, we can't separate them from their subsistent relations, but here's what perichoresis helps us recognize. Here's what it is not. It is not three separate circles, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these spaces here represent separation. That is what you have in creatures. Creatures have exterior relations that entail separate identities. So it is not separation of person. That, that would be false view number two. Nor is it this. For those of you who've, who've, who've looked into some of your Venn diagrams, nor is it a relationship. I'm not a very good artist. But nor is it a relationship where there is some overlap of personal relation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where there's some kind of, of overlap in, in the sense that the Father exists in, initially in an exterior relation to the Son and then comes to overlap personally with Him. And the Son exists in an exterior relationship separate from the Holy Spirit. And then He comes to have a relationship of overlap. Um, and I guess in, in this one, there, there, there's no true overlap between Son and Spirit, so there's a limitation in my diagram. But my point here is that this overlap model is simply an attempt to bring three separate persons into partial personal inhabitation of one another. And these two really, uh, the overlap and the separation, are kind of presuppose one another. Both of those are wrong. Here's what the best way I know how to illustrate this is, is that in one circle, the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit mutually indwell and penetrate one another in such a way that as far as it goes, they are personally exhaustive of one another. 
This is a symbol for the interiority of the personal coherence. It's a personally exhaustive interior indwelling of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that this looks quite similar to one person, even though the Father is still discriminated by personal properties, uh, by paternity, the Son uh, discriminated by filiation, the Spirit discriminated or distinguished by spiration. Nonetheless, the point is that the person of the Father is entirely interior to the person of the Son and vice versa. The exhaustive personal relation is such that person permeates person in such a way that while they remain distinct, they are exhaustively interior to one another and it transcends all creaturely analogies. By way of illustration, in what we heard earlier, this is an entailment of, of, of numerical unity. Just as the Father and Son and Spirit are not three separate subjects, but one in essence, so as one in essence, as the three who subsist as one, there is an exhaustive interiority of person inhabiting person in the Godhead. So the embrace that Turretin has in view is not an economic embrace. It is an ontological embrace, if we can conceive it. The ontological and archetypal relation of person dwelling in person, this conception is what lies at the foundation of the covenant idea where God relates in a new relation to that which is not God in the work of creation and voluntarily condescends to have personal fellowship that advances beyond probation through covenant. So Turretin's language of embrace offers us with something like the divine ontological archetype for the natural religious relation between God and image-bearing Adam, where person fellowships with person in a mutual embrace. God embraces Adam. Adam embraces God in what? A mutual embrace of personal fellowship and from the creaturely side, worship. The perfection of that personal embrace within the Trinity is the rationale for the existence of the embrace between God and the creature. But the point that we want to make here, as far as the Trinity goes, is that while this embrace is permeating and exhaustive, the personal identities of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not lost in those relations of coherence. In the perichoresis of the Godhead, there is not only permeation of person in person, but the integrity and distinctness of the persons in the embrace remains unaltered.
it leaves intact the integrity of the persons in the intertwining of their co-inhabitation. On the basis of this insight, then, we can see more clearly how the three persons of the Godhead are one God in three. Three subsistent relations, three coherent relations where person is indwelling person. All of this within the single and undivided essence of God. So the entailment is that the Trinitarian persons are absolute in themselves as they subsist in the undivided essence of God, yet they are relative to one another given the indwelling relations of coherence or perichoresis. They are immutably living persons who as God indwell one another in a bond of coherence. Absolute, yet related, immutable, yet dynamic, all that is God undivided as three distinct persons. Such is the characterization of Trinitarian persons in their eternal subsistent and coherent relations. Eternal, immutable, personal dynamism characterizes each Trinitarian person in these relations. Now, adding to what we've said up to this point, in historical perspective, T.F. Torrance, whose theology by no means we follow, he's a mutualist, but T.F. Torrance reminds us of the use of the term perichoresis in Orthodox Trinitarian theology, and he says this, it is to Gregory Nazianzen that theology owes the terminology for perichoretic relation applied by patristic theology to this, to the way in which the divine persons mutually contain and interpenetrate one another while completely retaining their incommunicable differences as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the Holy Trinity, all subsistent relations are in eternal movement mutually containing and interpenetrating one another. Now, if you go the direction of actualizing that the way Torrance and Bart will do, it's not correct. But if you resist mutualism, Go back to our earlier lectures if you want to remember mutualism. If you resist actualizing God in such a way that he becomes creaturely and mutable in his relation to creation, and if you think instead of the eternal and immutable self-contained God, here's the point. The subsistent relations as the one divine essence are in an eternal movement mutually containing and interpenetrating one another as what I'm going to call self-contained Trinitarian persons. Self-contained Trinitarian personhood, where in all of the subsistent relations of the immutable essence, you find eternal movement, eternal 
union, communion, inhabitation, embrace, and permeation, without any change, immutable and impassable, yet in eternal movement, without the persons losing themselves in that movement, either in being or personhood, you start to see what lies at the foundation of Van Til's Trinitarian theology. Now we have to avoid, I'm just going to say this one more time about T.F. Torrance, you must avoid all of the mutualism and correlativism that infects Torrance, without a doubt. But his point is a point about the historical conception in orthodoxy. And that historical conception is worth noting there's an eternal movement of eternally interpenetrating persons within the Godhead who are the immutable and impassable God, distinctly but inseparably. So Van Til can say in IST 2.12, we begin our thought about the infinity of God by insisting that the fullness of the being of God is back of the active fullness and variety of the spatio-temporal world. Scripture leads us in this respect. It has no hesitation in speaking anthropomorphically of God. It ascribes all manner of activity to Him. Of this activity, we cannot think otherwise than spatially and temporally, so we are face to face with the choice of either thinking of God as altogether like unto ourselves, or of thinking of ourselves as the finite analogs of the fullness of his being. We cannot do the first without wiping out the difference between the creator and creature, and so we are compelled to do the latter. Let me try to make this as explicit as I know how. The formulations of subsistent and coherent relations among the persons of the Godhead who are God, gives us a conception of eternal, dynamic, immutable, subsistent, coherent relations among the Trinitarian persons, whom Van Til will say we encounter in Revelation. It is this God who reveals himself as triune and not another. Language we've used to explicate Van Til helps us recognize that, he, that this God of whom we speak is the infinitely inexhaustible God of whom the persons are mutually exhaustive and about which this God is our interpretive concept everywhere. And so what do we have here? Well, in light of this doctrine of perichoresis, we can not only speak about the unity of God in the way we have with regard to the essence, but we can see something of the rationale as to why the interiority of the personal coherence moves us to speak of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as persons in language that complements and brings out the mystery of the unity of the divine essence where persons indwelling persons within the undivided personal essence of the Godhead. Now Hodge says this, and this is something Van Til picks up on. Hodge says that this 
is a profound mystery. He says, to expect that we, who cannot understand anything, not even ourselves, should understand these mysteries of the Godhead is to the last degree unreasonable. But as in every other sphere we must believe what we cannot understand, so we may believe all that God has revealed to us in His Word concerning Himself, though we cannot understand the Almighty unto perfection. You see, this doctrine is something that moves the church to confess the mystery of God's existence and extol the incomprehensible triune God in worship. This is not a puzzle to be solved. It's not an equation to be mastered. It is the ineffable unity and diversity of the Godhead, which are equally ultimate from all eternity, constraining us to worship the one who is three in one and one in three in the relations that we have described. And so, perichoresis, no more than the subsistent relations, entails tritheism. It's the last entailment. It's it's an impossible entailment if we're going to be sympathetic and charitable and rigorous as we understand Van Til. So when we're moving along the lines of developing Van Til's Trinitarian theology, it is to this full-orbed Trinitarianism that takes into account numerical unity and divine simplicity of essence, the subsistent relations of the persons who are the one God distinctly, as well as these permeating, mutual embracing relations of inhabitation, the perfect and complete interiority of personal coherence, It is that reality that's going to frame archetypally what God condescends to reveal to Adam, which is what? Personal fellowship with the triune God that can be advanced beyond in a state of probation and be brought to glory. If you're looking for the distinctively reformed foundation for covenant theology, over against Barth's Geschichte, over against the Roman Catholic conception of nature and grace and analogy, the place you need to look is to this full-orbed Reformed theology of subsistent and perichoretic relations among the persons who are the one living and true, absolutely personal God. And as we continue to move on, we'll talk a little bit more about Calvin's influence on Van Til, and then start to move in the direction of developing something foundational and foundationally neglected among Van Til scholars, what Van Til calls the representational principle, which takes this and begins to apply it in the direction of a developing, burgeoning theology of the image of God and covenant.